Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're doing a subject episode because we're talking about films that were shot on video. It's not too much of an overstatement, I don't think, to suggest that the advent of home video in the 1980s for a brief glorious moment democratized movie making absolutely because with the arrival of video and camcorder technology you could make a movie and it would share the same shelf space as any other hollywood blockbuster in fact it probably costs the same to buy on vhs that's right in the early days of video stores store owners had more shelf space than they had movies and the early economic model of video stores was let's say you buy a vhs copy of star wars you can rent that tape to whoever you want because you own it you're the store you bought it you can do whatever you want and with you it. paid probably a hundred us dollars for it as well that's the thing the big studios hated this model so even though they couldn't stop it they would price the movies for the rental market so yeah the vhs copy of star wars might cost a hundred dollars and the video store owner like it'd be an investment for them mm-hmm. but then if you had a video camera and you didn't now need the money and technical skills or the infrastructure required to make a 35 millimeter professional feature film. And for a brief glorious period, a lot of these movies that these, let's say, amateur filmmakers were making were getting pretty widespread video store distribution. People need to understand that, like, if you're maybe even a little bit younger than me and Will, you don't understand the way that, like, shooting on film works, which is you need the gigantic cameras to do so. You could be shooting on Super 8 or 16 millimeter, but the one big expensive thing is that you need to get that film developed. And once you have that film developed, you then need to be able to cut it on a particular machine, then make another copy that you then need to do another copy and then multiple copies. While with the advent of video technology, all you need are VCRs to the point that you can Edit your film between two VCRs. There's no more middleman. You get a final copy, and then you can just dub that, and then you can distribute it. So video, and all movies are video now, or most movies are, like technically speaking. They're not on film. They're not on celluloid. That's right. But but video uh, in the 1980s became a popular medium for a lot in the avant-garde or experimental worlds, like George Kuchar or Jean-Luc Godard, people like that became very prolific in it because of how mobile and tactile it was. Orson Welles in his later years was thinking about projects he could do on video. I would have loved to see an Orson Welles video project. But... Really, this was the territory of the amateur, like mm. like people making exploitation films. Yeah, you make a film on video because you don't have enough money to shoot on film. And the thing about film is that like, if you're making a feature film on, for example, 16 millimeter, there's a certain amount of money that you have to spend, a bare minimum, that like will equal a end product that has a certain level of quality that's also brought that like as long as your film is in focus it's correctly exposed then like it will have a sheen to it that will you know give it more i guess production value is the term but and video doesn't have that which created a whole new dimension of people that did not even need to know the basics of how to do these things and they could have a feature film at the end of it so when we say shot on video like you know it when you see it it looks like it was shot on a videotape Yes. You know, it's got, you know what it looks it's got like. the tracking lines. It's got the sort of weird washed out mm-hmm. fluctuating color. It may have between edits a weird second of dead air because when you're editing between two VCRs, you wouldn't have like pinpoint editing. Mm-hmm. So like it's kind of like, ah, 
it's roughly where the cut you want it to be. But yeah, this was a way for certain amateur filmmakers who cottoned on to the fact that like exploitable elements in this world, mm-hmm. like all you needed was a really nice painted cover. Yeah. You know, if you get a painted cover, you put it out there, you have an eye catching title and like distributors were hungry for any content. Like if you presented a feature film that was horror to a distributor and they maybe they wouldn't even watch it. They go, wait, is it how long is it? But perfect. Let's put it out. The painted cover thing, by the way, is really important and really speaks to how the home video market or the home entertainment market has changed because you look on Netflix now and because it's small icons on a screen, the priority is like picture of a movie star's face. Yeah. It's always like just the heads of the actors and just a big title. Yeah. And the design is much less creative, but back in the eighties to get to be eye popping on a shelf, it'd be a painted cover with a lot of gore. And you know, why don't they still do that? I don't understand. Like people would be like, Oh, I want that. It's like a weird iconic image on Netflix. Let's watch that movie. I mean, I think they just have their like on Netflix, the market research probably just shows that people are scrolling and they don't want a second of thinking is but too Netflix much. But Netflix is also automated that it's supposed to show you images from the movie that it thinks the user will like. So mm-hmm. it changes depending on who is scrolling they through. They probably also think, like, if you see a painted cover on Netflix. Oh, that's they, old. It's an animated film or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, As opposed to, you know, the movies that we watch today that they all have very garish, sometimes lightly related to the film covers to really grab attention. Now, I would say the golden age age of shot on video movies is the 80s like bleeding skull the website and also book series that has made it its mission to chronicle these these movies mm. cites 1982 to 1988 as the golden age shot on video movies of course continued throughout the 90s there were companies like wave that well yeah it's a little which bit different, became a different though. business model yeah. because in the a 90s business model like would it be fair to say that in the 90s movie studios maybe made peace with video stores a little more yeah and in the 90s it was really a direct-to-video market that like studios and production companies were starting to exploit so there was less space for the like no budget shot on video films as well as like blockbuster became the dominant yeah like, and they were very discriminatory with what they would carry on their shelves right so it wasn't the wild west of mom and pop shops and so a lot of the 90s ones were you know mail order movies I mentioned Wave Productions. That was a company out of like what, New Jersey, where they would make shot on video movies of like Well, you would request. Yeah, you'd request and you'd you'd basically ask for specifications and they weren't pornos. No. Exactly. They wouldn't do those. But like, I want a woman who has duct tape ripped off her body. And it's like, all right, we'll make it for and so you. So here's a yeah, here's a movie where like it has a story of some kind. But those were like mail order and these weren't mm. ones that would often show up on video store shelves. Right. I don't think. They may be some exceptions here or there and also i I would say that consumers in the 90s like after a while you get burned too many times and you start demanding a higher level of technical polish yes that after a few times of renting a movie and forcing yourself to like it maybe watching it two three times because i paid for this video rental (laughs) and i got nothing else but in the in the late 80s and early 90s like somebody like roger corman in the early 80s was still making movies for the theatrical market and then when that dried up Something like Carnosaur or the the movies he was making in the 90s, just they looked like movies. 
Yes. Which but, some of these movies don't. Yeah. Which I say with affection. But I would say that like the majority of Roger Corman's 90s output is pretty dire. Like you look I agree. at the stuff that he produced and you're like, I haven't heard of any I, of these. I, and there's a reason for that. I agree. But that's where the direct-to-video market went in the 90s. Yeah. And I know some people are like, what about the Blood Fist movies? It's like, okay, okay. There were yeah, exceptions what, what here. what about them, I say? <laughs> Don the Dragon Wilson. So we watched three movies for this episode. Why don't we start with the King Dad of them all which is claimed as the first horror film shot on video boarding house and boarding house is notable because it was shot on video but it was also blown up to 35 millimeter film and received a minimal theatrical distribution yeah so this is what the writer director star john wintergate his plan for it was let's focus most of the money on the blow up, which costs a lot. So basically what you're doing is you're capturing on celluloid the video to give it like a different sheen. So you don't have that like video affect or look to it. I mean, you absolutely do. But, well, but... did you watch the 35 millimeter version that's on the uh, Agfa release? Uh, no, I watched the DVD version. Okay, so you didn't watch the one that was on film. So you right. didn't have that like full effect of it. Okay. And you're not going to fool anyone if you've seen any other shot on video movies because this is like the quintessential one. It's shot exactly like a shot on video film. Mm -hmm. And I think that what Boarding House does is that it these three movies all fit different categories and it's all people getting opportunities that probably otherwise they wouldn't to make movies. And in the John Wintergate case, this is like Tommy Wiseau, the room style film. Right. So what is the deal with John Wintergate? He made, I this, don't know. he made this one movie. Okay. This is one of the appeals of a lot of shot on video horror movies to those who find them appealing. They have that quality of like found in a ditch somewhere. Mm -hmm. And John Wintergate, he plays the main character who is a sort of what would you uh, describe guru, him as? Yeah, uh, psychic power, very cool guy. He wears leopard print shit, and he has this house in the suburbs that's haunted, and he rents it out specifically to women. Yes, specifically young women, which with, includes with, his wife Kalasu, who is the other creative force on this movie, and her band. And from this point on, the movie is about everything and nothing because oh yeah. So there, this movie is interesting because there is a two and a half hour version of it but like everyone will tell you that's seen it you don't need to watch that one mm -hmm. but that may explain why this is a film that feels kind of like stray thoughts of someone's mind yeah absolutely there's a bit of an inland empire-ish quality yes. to it where there's like anything can happen there are all these women in this house many of them topless all in like hot tubs Jacu yeah jacuzzis and like there's this band that plays a lot and the movie sort of drifts in and out of a dreamscape mm -hmm. where there's you know a, a killer fridge someone will turn into a rat face monster for a couple seconds there's like a pig man or pig thing right. that attacks them. A lot, a lot of gore. Yep. A lot of, we went to the store when Halloween was over and we got these at discount that we can utilize in this motion picture. And particularly in the last act with all the sort of like psychic powers. So cool SOV films shit. love psychic powers. Right. Like they're covered in them. Right. I guess maybe it's like Carrie fever is, you know, sweeping the nation. Also, you know, dry ice machine, mm -hmm. fog. color lighting. Yeah. And so, for people who maybe don't know what shot on video films, what is the aesthetic that like you see it and you're like, oh, I get it. There's a shot on video. Okay. The aesthetic. Oh, man. It, it's hard uh, to lock answer down. that. 
Like the camera well, okay. doesn't move. Well, okay. The aesthetic is no adherence to the 180 degree rule. No, I don't think they understand what that is. Yeah. A lot of these people, they've seen a movie and they go, I know what's good and what's bad in a movie. So those kind of like technical things that if you're grabbing a film camera, oftentimes you will learn because you went through, you know, kind of, you know, a journey to get to finally making your movie. You know, the basics. Y these people don't know that. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of, uh, I, I hate to keep using the word, but the vibe of amateurishness where like they're there are actors in the movie who would never be in a normal movie. No. And they... they but that's what's great about right, these exactly. movies. Right, exactly. There's a slight quality of remove in their performances and their delivery of dialogue. Like John Wintergate, he looks different. Yeah. And he sounds different. And even the women in Boarding House... Mm -hmm look and sound a little bit different yeah and they're just kind of boarding house is more of a place you visit than yeah. like because if you try to place it in any kind of order you'll be like wait what happens after this or that well when i think of my you know really favorite shot on video movies like things or sledgehammer mm -hmm. oh man sledgehammer there's something about the aesthetic of video that's a little bit so people talk about how film has a dream quality because it's heightened. It's a little bit enhanced, whereas video can be coldly literal. Yeah. I feel that way about digital video, but I don't necessarily feel that way about videotape. And maybe it's, you know, there's that line in Chinatown where John Houston says, and please forgive the politically incorrect terminology here, but he says, of course, I'm respectable. I'm old. Politicians, ugly buildings and horrors all get respectable if they last long enough. Well, I wonder that about video a little bit because I watch these shot on video movies and it's like, yeah, this is it's ugly, but it's beautiful. Well, the thing about video is that it's not capturing things in the way they look when you're talking about that almost like cold harshness of digital it's almost like the people who are creating the technology are trying to get so close to real life right that it, it looks wrong because that's not how we consume this kind of entertainment while video is not doing that it's kind of hazy that's and right. dreamy no matter what you're shooting that's right and so all of these movies a movie like sledgehammer which is basically slow cinema oh yeah it's well this. i think they shot a 20 minute movie and they're like all right let's put it in slow motion to pad it out to feature length running time and there's something about being in these very familiar spaces a lot of these movies are just shot in like houses, houses. yeah yeah just regular suburban houses but through that haze of of videotape and then so many of these 80s movies have droning synth scores well yeah because when you're making a video like this and you need to do a soundtrack you get out your keyboard and you hit a few notes and boom you got yourself a score right and i mean chester novel turner is the king of that like certain of his scores he was this filmmaker from chicago who made black devil doll from hell and tales from the quad we're not Zone. talking about those ones because he could have his own episode he'll have his own episode too but i'll just say that the scores in those movies <laughs> like they just drill into your head yeah it's like a a, a little bird like pecking at my skull still <laughs> and that's what you get from these kind of movies because again it's a vision of oftentimes just one person who's like directing mm -hmm. the whole show which you cannot really get on film due to the barrier of entry and yeah these movies at their best they render the familiar or unfamiliar mm -hmm. that like oh the people making this like boarding house john wintergate he thought he knew what a horror film was and when he was finished i'm sure he went yeah this is what a horror film is right and it's like no it's not these kind of structures that we expect from the entertainment we consume are not present here it's like no guardrails and that's what makes them beautiful but what also makes people react against them that they're like what is this i don't like this uh-huh and Maybe it's accidental, maybe it's not, but there's a genuinely otherworldly quality that can be quite 
unpleasant or quite disorienting. And in fact, in Inland Empire, David Lynch really tapped into that. You know, mm-hmm. what is Inland Empire if not a the, shot on video the movie. world's most accomplished shot on video horror movie? And that like even John Wintergate in that Tommy Wiseau style started going around going, Boarding House is a horror comedy. Oh, it's like, yeah. all right, yeah, no, sure it's not. It is. <laughs> no, it's not. All right, we also watch one. Let's go across the pond. Hello, Governor, because we're going to the UK. Suffer Little Children from 1983, another one of the best shot on video horror movies. This is a movie that was shrouded in mystery and controversy for a long time because it was seized during the video nasty panic. It was the product of, I mean, the director is somebody named Alan Briggs, but it was really the brainchild of a writer, Meg Shanks, who was a teacher at this school. Yeah, theatrical school. And she actually used all the children who are, you know, adolescent, preteen kids in the movie. So what's great about this movie is that while Boring House is kind of an ego project, this is not that. This is more of like children making a movie not knowing what you should or should not do. Right. It's a sort of satanic panic thriller. It takes place in a group home for orphan children where a mute girl named Elizabeth arrives. And she's a little satanic girl. Oh no, does she have psychic powers? Yeah, yeah. she's doing little satanic rituals in the attic. And all of a sudden, strange, violent occurrences start taking place all over this school. So, or this, this group home. So kids are having nightmares about zombies. I love these, you know, the oh, yeah, shambling. Like, but then they just have a picnic. Yeah. Like, this is stuff you would not see in a regular feature film. There are strange, dramatic injuries. The adults in the place start feeling the conflicts as well. And it should be noted that this film was shot in a big abandoned house. Mm-hmm. So, like, that adds another level of unreality to it, where it's like these big white walls where it seems no one lives, but it's supposed to be an orphanage. It's a little bit of play acting. But at the same time, what you get here is like a raw performance from all the kids who are giving it their all. And by the way, I love this movie without irony, by the way, because, again, this is the one where I realize there's no adherence to the 180 degree rule. There's no adherence to the rules that have been set down about how to delineate space in a movie. And it's constantly disorienting and strange that way. It's like even when there's not gore on the screen, which there is a lot of, but when there's not, it feels like the movie is jagged. It feels like it's kind of just visually assaulting you. But there's a whole bunch of odd decisions like that there's these video generated title cards that'll Mm -hmm. be like Sunday. And it's like, it doesn't really mean anything, Mm -hmm. but it's just giving that like shock of there's a decision here that anyone would have probably told them, why are you doing, you don't need these, but the filmmakers felt they needed like later Mm -hmm. in in the middle of a scene, even though the film itself does not have a three act structure. It's just kind of all over the place. Like a lot of the best video films, you're just like living in this world until suffer little children is most infamous for it's like well the last act the last act insanity nothing that you saw leading up to that would prepare you for like just every child being brutally murdered on screen (laughs) again this is like a film that like when you're a teenager you make these kind of films because you don't know any better that someone will say like you can't like have a young teenager screaming that she doesn't want to stab a knife into her leg and then she does it in like graphic detail What, what a great scene and you know that probably sounds really unpleasant and there is a lot of gore in this movie and it's pretty well executed for an amateurish project but it's also really funny yeah it is it's just great seeing that girl like just stabbing herself over and over while these like ejaculatory splurts of blood just just 
cover the wall. And then like all best shot on video films that even though they're not following like conventional structures, it does end with a bang of something that you could not see coming in a million. I don't even want to spoil it, no. but let's just say maybe a little Lord and Savior shows up at the end of the film <laughs> to uh, fight the devil himself. When people talk about what is you know, the Citizen Kane of shot on video exploitation movies from the from the 1980s. It is Blonde Death from 1984, which is the only directorial effort of James Robert Baker, who later committed suicide, mm. unfortunately. And this is a movie that I really think, uh, yeah, it's not technically polished, but otherwise you don't need to make any apologies for no. it. And again, the form completely matches the content here. It is this whale of agony. It has a little bit of the sort of feeling of like, anger with bourgeois norms and society that the early John Waters movies yeah, did. Yeah, I was going to say the e easiest comparison you can make is John Waters, but then it's also not really that kind of uh, uh, grotesque like the early John it's Waters not, is. It's not kind of uh, silly in the mm. way that his movies are. or it's not. It, it is silly. Well, it's it's a different kind of comedy. Mm. It, it doesn't have, An angry comedy. Yeah, it doesn't have the carnival barker aspect that the John Waters movies do. So, James Robert Baker, I think that it should be pointed out, would go on to mostly be a novelist writing really powerful novels often about the gay experience and that like he did go to Hollywood and write scripts and he hated the experience that he said he was making money but it was just miserable having to go to rooms and like give this hard work to executives who would then toss it out without thinking about it so like Blondess which was shot in LA is clearly a you know just an expression of that frustration that like all right I can make my movie and I can do it the way that I want supposedly under a budget of two thousand dollars and what that means is it'll be a little over long but every line will be a zinger which is not something that you usually associate with shot on video films so the main character tammy is played by sarah lee wade in one of the great performances in a shot on video movie she plays a regular teenager who lives with you know a fundamentalist christian family and a sexually abusive father and they watch the pat goon show yeah their, Wink. their favorite uh, christian singer and she gets so tired and frustrated in this repressive abusive house her parents leave on a trip she makes the acquaintance of i mean how would you describe him this like thief this petty criminal who comes in and ties her up who mm -hmm. she like falls in love with it's a sort of badland story yeah early it's absolutely on. a badland story but then it goes in different directions as like whatever preoccupation the writer director wanted to explore he could do here and like what you know they they what initially presents as an abusive situation becomes a tale of mad love between these characters you know bonnie and clyde-ish mm -hmm. love as well and then when her mother comes back or and then when her mother or is it her stepmother comes back, she mm. like ties her up. Oh, after killing her mother's lover. And that's when like the murders start. Mm. And there's no real goal that these characters have. They're just living their life. Ends with there's like her parents get killed death by asphyxiation in the garage, which is very sad because that's actually how the writer director killed himself as well. You'll see this movie often described as misanthropic or nihilistic, which I think is not quite accurate mm. i mean it's acidic it's misanthropic to the extent that it's sort of rebelling against bourgeois norms there's a, a memorable scene in the last act where they go visit disneyland for real and they actually shoot at disneyland i mean that's another advantage of shooting on videos you could just go with the camera and do it and no one would know the wiser because mm -hmm. you know those cameras are made for like families filming themselves and like there's no way out for these characters no but they 
do escape at the end in some way. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, it's not necessarily creating like an alternative path forward for them. But what it's doing is sort of relishing the space that they've been able to create for themselves. <laughs> oh, wait, uh, I just remember what the final moment of the film. Yeah, there's no escape for these characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like any kind of hope that is offered, though, reveals to just be a trick by the other authority figures. Right. I mean, the writer director did say he considered himself a like anarchist figure mm -hmm. and that's definitely the vibe of this movie like punk all right screw everybody let's live our life and everything sucks because hey you know what it does and that's why i don't find this movie depressing though mm, like yeah. like people talk about it as being nihilistic and you know maybe it sort of is but there's a lot of exuberance in the movie a lot of yeah a lot of joy in the relationship and the violation of norms and the violation of rules and the sort of creating of a, a new moral universe within a corrupt moral universe and because it's kind of a we're following these characters go about their live movie and the dialogue is so sharp, you never really get that sense of disconnect that you may run into when you watch, for example, Suffer Little Children and you go, oh, this is a horror movie. This is not how horror movies usually look. Let me yeah. kind of because Blonde Death, you, there's an immediacy to the way that it's filmed. Right. Like I hate to, to use the term so bad it's good in describing shot on video movies mm -hmm. because I don't necessarily subscribe to that. But if one did. Yes. Like some of the pleasure in shot on video movies comes from the disparity between what they're trying to accomplish and what they do. I think that this movie like the movie works because it's like created outside the system and it's made using. It's an individual who made it. Right. And right. It's not an ego project either right. it's more of an expression of something that he cannot do in any other form and like a movie like this should like spit in the face of technical polish yeah yeah exactly because you know that just makes it feel more immediate and that's why blondes is as powerful as it is but unlike the other ones i don't believe blondes got much of distribution when it came out or was finished how did it build its reputation i'm not sure like i don't know if it's one that got kind of shared around by people maybe by kind of the you know outlets that it went out through it existed and maybe got you know as a work by a you know I, I don't know how well regarded the writer director is in circles but like if you he has a big wikipedia page so there's clearly fans so maybe that's how it got passed around but you know when bleeding skull put it out on dvd and vhs a decade ago it had that kind of like homemade photocopied cover. And mm -hmm. I believe that's how it went out. It didn't have the kind of like little bit more polished suffer little children or even more polished boarding house, you know, advertising campaign behind it. It had that DIY to it through its bones and that's existed since its creation. Before we close out the discussion, I think it's also important to note that one of the reasons, you know, just beyond the fact that they had shelf space to fill that these movies were made and received distribution as they were offering things that major studios didn't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some of these movies, when I look at the list of like the greatest shot on video horror movies, you'll see things like the burning moon that, you know, Olaf Ichtenbach. Yeah. That German splatter movie or splatter farm. One of your all time oh, favorites. Love splatter farm. Th this utterly sort of depraved and, and scatological made like, by teenagers. Gore the idea comedy. Of a horror film. Yeah. Or, you know, what was the one by Mike Diana blood brothers? Oh which yes. He made yes. when he was 16 or something Yep. like to the people who liked, liked and like those movies, movies part of the appeal is that like they just go to such extremes that no mainstream horror movie would mm -hmm. and either because people don't know any better or they just need to express it and no one is telling them no which is why 
there's, you know, I think we live in a golden age of shot on video stuff. It doesn't have a stigma that it had attached to it even a decade ago. Well, one of the reasons for this, I think, is because videotape is an outmoded technology. Yeah, so there's that nostalgia looking back at it. Exactly. And when it's not regarded as just like the poor second cousin of the default medium, which is, you know, film, like, like then you can appreciate it as a counter aesthetic. So now there are so many DVD and Blu-ray companies who are devoted to excavating these shot on video movies and releasing them in beautiful overpriced packages and people can appreciate the look of these movies as something that's not just like a replacement for film yeah it's not oh this isn't as good as film it's an alternative way to visualize the medium what are some of your other favorite shot on video movies uh hawk jones from 1986 beautiful in which a bunch of kids pretend to be police officers and it's played completely straight it's the better bugsy malone yes i agree alien beast by carl j sukenik from 1991 this is a guy that like his shot on video movies are not move. They're, they're like art pieces and they have to be seen to be believed. Well, speaking of art pieces, I mean, Tina Krause's Limbo. Oh, love it. From 1999. And she came out of Wave because she was one of the Wave kind of like actors in that circle. I mean, actually kind of a difficult movie to watch. Yeah, which is very funny because when Tina Krause talked about it, she said, oh, I want it to be more kind of like Hellraiser-ish. Like those, and that's not what it is at all. L- Limbo is like genuinely a sort of trance-like mm-hmm. film that really uses the proper properties of video to get that across i also want to give a shout out to you know far from the best but jan gal the beast from the east i was looking at it on this list as well by by conrad brooks I mean, Conrad Brooks was one of Ed Wood's entourage. And in the 90s, you know, he kind of hit the convention circuit after the Tim Burton movie came out. And he was like, oh, they like the Ed Wood movies? Well, I'll make my own Ed Wood movies. They'll love them. And he made, you know, some very terrible films. Conrad Brooks versus the werewolf. Well, that was by David the Rock. Oh, sorry. My mistake. But I feel that was almost, you know, a Conrad Brooks production. Yeah. I mean, Jangal the Beast from the East. Yeah, that was him trying to make the Beast of Yucca Flats for the new generation. And, you know, it's like, imagine a 68 year old man gets a video camera and tries to make an Ed Wood movie and doesn't quite get it. No. But actually, but it's his own vision. We, we mentioned David the Rock Nelson. I mean, he never got distribution in video stores, but he was a convention guy. Still is. Yep, I think. Still is. He's out there. He's a strange fellow. Very who, strange. Who makes camcorder movies. That in, are two and a half hours long. And is he, is he live in Baltimore? I'm not sure. Uh, maybe somewhere around. A lot of uh, him filming the entire movie himself, which means like he's holding the camera out on his arm pointed at his face he's a very strange like aging monster kid who makes movies like dracula versus the scorpion versus frankenstein and versus the devil yeah yeah we can't forget nick millard another man who i believe have you gone down the nick millard no no i haven't do you know who he is like he's famous for his movies like death nurse criminally insane a lot that he shot i've heard of him wife and mother and what's great about his films is that like they disintegrate as they play before your (laughs) eyes because like he started shooting them on film but then he started shooting them on video but then he started implementing some of the shot on film into the video ones as flashback or padding so you're like i don't even know what i'm watching anymore he also did some hardcore pornography as well oh probably my own heart like the most like disgusting ones you could imagine (laughs) because boy nick millard he had his own but he was one of those guys that like he got in when they wanted horror content. So there'd be like a very slick, you know, image on the front. And you're like, oh, this is a real movie, right? Well, yes, in so many words it is. But yeah, Nick Millard, he definitely deserves a deep dive in the important cinema club. Maybe a Shocktober subject. So shot on video, if you are unfamiliar with it, I hope you will give some of the movies that we discussed a chance. 
and because they've never been more available. That's right. This month, one of the Vinegar Syndrome partner labels is releasing Blonde Daffa. Not any Vinegar Syndrome partner label, Bleeding Skull, the partner label. That's right. In a beautiful new edition. And I would say maybe start with that one. Start yeah. with that one or Boarding House. So, Justin, do we have any letters? We do have letters. And as per usual, you can send them to Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Mikiel. And it goes, Hey, Will and Justin. Hope this finds you well. He thanks us for introducing him to the works of Matt Farley, as well as open up the world of Hong Kong cinema and Jess Franco. Basically, you've broadened my horizons. Oh, wow. oh well, thank, thank you. Thank you. He also mentions that thanks to my letterbox review of Hundreds of Beavers, he actually programmed the film in Belgium and had the stars and directors come down, to which I say, I'm really happy you could discover what was the funniest movie that I saw last year. And also, how about bringing me and Will up to Belgium? Yeah. We'd love to visit. Fly us out. First class only, but... <laughs> You know, <laughs> on another note, they wanted to inquire whether you've considered exploring episodes on following trickster like filmmaker, the Portuguese director Miguel Gomez and the Romanian funny man Radu Jude. Now, you know, Radu Jude, you're a fan of him. We've gotten a lot of requests for Radu Jude lately. Um, I think maybe doesn't he have a new movie that's been playing and that's why people right. have been seeing it. Do not expect too much from the end of the world. Really enjoyed it when I saw it at TIFF and, you know, Bad Luck Banging. Very mm -hmm. funny movie, too. And Miguel Gomez, he is the filmmaker behind the Arabian Nights trilogy. Did you ever see that oh, one? Oh, no, I haven't. I mean, they, I have that Blu-ray, yeah. you know, that I dutifully purchased and put on my shelf. Yeah, I mean, you really got to carve out a day for that, don't you? Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's one that's going to challenge you a little bit based on the other work by that filmmaker that I've seen. I know you probably have a huge list of director actors you want to discuss in future episodes, but I took the liberty of suggesting them because I feel you would have fun with them. I think we would have fun with them. Yeah. And I don't even think Mr. Jude is on, on my list, so I'm going to add him now, even though a lot of people have been asking we, us we, about we've it. We've had requests. Yeah, we should do them. Anyway, thank you very much, Mikael. I think that's how you pronounce your name. I apologize if that pronunciation is incorrect. Thank you very much again for that letter. And our next one is from Enrico. And he goes, hey, Justin Will, firstly, I'd like to say I prefer Big Denver to Big December. It's been decided. Thank, thank you. I mean, the month is over now, but... Yep. Next time we do it again. It'll be Big Sember. Yeah. Oh, no, Big Denver. Big oh, Denver. Oh, man. We don't want to start that was fight close. again. Yeah. Woo. Secondly, I'm so glad one of your recent Patreon episodes was about things you've been reading. More episodes like that, please. And please indulge me by letting me tell you about what I've been reading. Franco Nero's 2022 me memoir, Django. I'm not going to read the rest because it's in Italian and I can't. Which, as far as I know, has not been translated in into English. Damn it. Okay. I was wondering how I could not have heard of this. I'm not the biggest Franco Nero fan, but he's always intrigued me like a puzzle I need to solve, perhaps because he reminds me of my father. Whoa. His memoir is not incredibly insightful, and only a few of his many stories really stand out, like the time he witnessed a mob hit while filming Jonathan of the Bears in post-Soviet Russia. But it has a great framing device. The book opens with Nero hallucinating he's in some desert in the far west where he meets Django in his coffin, and after a tense exchange where it looks like Django might kill Nero, Nero decides to tell Django his whole life story as a way to prove to Django that he's done more in his life than just embody this iconic character. By the time we return to this scenario in the epilogue, Nero realizes that Django has slept through the whole thing, so he wakes him up, at which point Django tells Nero to open his coffin, which Nero does with some trepidation, only to find a pair of fishing rods. So Nero and Django go fishing together, and Nero embraces the fact that he may be trapped in this hallucination for some time. Have you encountered similarly weird flourishes in the many memoirs and biographies you've read? And I might as well ask, is there something you'd like to know about Franco Nero's career that I might be able to look up? 
Yes. Does he mention Frank D'Angelo in there anywhere? Because he is in 2015's The Neighborhood. Yeah, that is the main info we want to know from Frank Nero. I will say probably not. I was flipping through Jim Carrey's memoir recently. Oh, wait, did he write his own? Is well, it like Funny Man of. or Rubberface? It's, it's called Memoirs and Misinformation. And Oh, right. It's a fake one. It's at BMV sometimes. You can see it. And yeah, yeah I, I suspect he was probably inspired by Norm MacDonald's memoir, which is a great book mm. based on a true story. I think it's called where basically the whole thing is like a tall tale. But, you know, if you read between the lines, you can you find get the, the truth. truth. Yeah. And Jim Carrey's memoir is like a. I don't know it's stupid, honestly. Yeah. It's the well, it's, some people would say '90s Jim Carrey was stupid as well. <laughs> well, you know, there's a difference between a guy making funny faces and funny voices, and then a guy who thinks he's Charlie Kaufman all of a sudden. You yeah. know, you know. Speaking of Charlie Kaufman, great memoir, "Confessions of a Dangerous Mind." Oh, the by the Chuck Barris. Yes, where yeah. it's his memoir, but filtered through the fact that he worked for the CIA during that time, which is not true. Did you ever read Leslie Nielsen's fake memoir from the '90s? I think it was called "The Naked Truth." You put it out on the shelf when we were in a youth right, bookstore and right. I went, I can't do it, Will. That must be why it's fresh on my mind, yeah. Because Wait, have you read it? I, in the 90s, I did. When I was like 10, I rented it from the library and it, basically it's like a fake memoir. Yeah. It's him as if he's a great movie star. Oh, that rules. Yeah, and I re- can't remember if it was funny or not. Honestly. I remember reading Bruce Campbell's If Chins Could Kill and I was like, this rules. That's a good book. And then there was a second one which was like a novel that he wrote starring him. I'm like, this is not good. Oh man, I have read that. Make Love, Love the, the Bruce, Bruce Campbell way. way. It's not good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that book started as like a parody dating manual. Oh, is that what and it then was? It turned into something else. Yeah, because I was hoping for more stories of him as an actor. That's not what I got. Well, he has come out with a sequel memoir. It's I have. It's mostly about him farming vanilla in where he lives. Really? I, yeah. s- I assumed it was like, because I keep seeing it at the store and I keep being like, do I care about burn notice? Not really. Mm. You know? Well, because Emily read it and she was like, boy, a lot about him farming is <laughs> included in these pages. Because, you know, I guess you get all the hits in If Chins Could Kill. Yeah. So he's probably like, what other stories do I have that people would want to hear? Do you know who got that memoir going? Who? Jonathan Hodgman. Because he worked at a publishing house and he said, Wait, I th- the, the guy from like The Daily Show. And yeah, stuff. The Daily Show. Yeah. He does a podcast. The Judge w- Windows, John Hosman, Hodgman. Yeah. Windows himself from yes. the Mac and Windows <laughs> ads. Yeah, he worked at a publishing house and he went, Oh, I think people will be interested in this. There's fan sites about him and I'm a fan of Bruce Campbell. And it took a lot of convincing for them to publish. And that book was a hit too. So, wow. I love that book. Yeah. Yeah, I love I haven't read that. And I love the introduction that involves, I think it's Ivan Ramey and Sam Ramey who just rob Bruce Campbell and then leave. They like steal like 50 bucks off of him. Love that stuff. It's a great book too because it's basically like a series of failures. You know, it's it's one kind of failed movie or TV show after another like Briscoe County or Mm -hmm. you know, Congo, stuff like that. Who can forget what is it, Jack of Trades? I think or something like that. Or there's a whole chapter in that book about him like auditioning for The Phantom and making it like all the way up to being the second choice. And And they went, we want to go with the most uncharismatic person to ever play a superhero. Billy Zane. Oh, Justin. No. A little movie called Titanic? No, no, no. Have you seen The Phantom? Not lately. Billy Zane. I love Billy Zane. But in that film, he decides to play the main character as a guy that talks like this the entire time. So, yeah. I would have loved Bruce Campbell in The Phantom. He would have ruled. Yeah. Treat Williams is the villain in that film. Very good. And he's acting like 10 times bigger than he ever has yes. around Billy Zay. <laughs> Phantom Patreon episode. That's we what gotta, I haven't week. seen that in years. Yeah. Let's watch the Phantom. All right. Well, thank you very much for that letter. And again, it's important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing on our Patreon this week? Will? Well, something went into the public domain recently. Woo-hoo! 
I'm talking about Harold Lloyd Speedy. No. Oh, finally. You can watch it and be like, look at those crazy rides they had at Coney Island at the time. Buster Keaton's The Cameraman, also in the public domain. Whoa. I think The Jazz Singer was last year. Oh, oh yeah. So you can have your Jazz Singer Halloween costume without <laughs> fear of being sued. Yep. Jazz Singer Bust gold out the shoe polish. Yeah. <laughs> okay, actually, what if we did that? <laughs> no, I don't want to. Wouldn't that be funny That's if we did that? too much time spent on that. No, no. <laughs> okay. I would rather Can do... we do Speedy? Wouldn't that be funny? If then we can get a 16 millimeter print of let's speedy just, let's just steal the criterion transfer i would love yeah you can't copyright a transfer that's not in the public domain anymore oh, fuck yeah i would love to do metro metropolis if someone can get a 16 millimeter print of that metropolis the 16 millimeter scan yep. that would be that'd be awesome yeah anyway, i love that we're not talking about any of that on patreon we're talking about the 1928 mickey mouse and we somehow do not even talk about it going into the public domain <laughs> We did yeah, forget. barely. Yeah. But we talk about Steamboat Willie, Plane Crazy, the Gallop and Gaucho. We say, why Mickey Mouse? What mm. was it about him? Yep. And we talk about Leonard Maltin introduction, steel cases. All that the stuff that we love. Disney stuff came in. So check that out. Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Oh, and one last plug. This is coming out before our yep, event, it's coming right? out. Okay. January 23rd. Fox Theater in Toronto. We're showing The Dragon Lives Again, the kung fu movie where Bruce Lee goes to hell, fights James Bond, meets Popeye, etc. Mm -hmm. Bruce Plotation on the big screen in Toronto. Come and see it. Fox Theater. Don't miss it. You listen to this? You live here? You better cancel your date, leave your family, quit your job. You come and see that movie. If if your significant other doesn't want you to go, divorce them. <laughs> yes. And we will see you there. And we hold no responsibility about any actions that are taken to come see The Dragon Lives Again at the Fox Theater. So what are we doing next week, Will? Well, we were scrolling through our list and a name popped up, a name that we both love. Mm -hmm. And I actually thought maybe we had done an episode about his work before, but we had not. But we've touched upon it and, along the way. And you all love this guy, mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily love him as a director. Yes, even though he's made many iconic films and is definitely a man with an individual signature. A strange director. Yes, definitely. very strange. And a, a man who for a period was able to make fairly strange movies in the mainstream, in the studio system. I'm talking about Danny DeVito. What? The Penguin himself? That's right. We're going to be talking about War of the Roses. War of the Roses. Uh, Duplex. Yeah, and Throw Mama from the Train, which I believe was a big hit for him as well. We've already done a Patreon episode about Death the Smoochie, but we'll touch on it, We'll of touch course. upon it. And we also talked about Hoffa on the Jack Nicholson episode, I believe. Yeah. An odd filmography. Some, some high highs, mm -hmm. some low lows. And it's a shame that he just doesn't make movies anymore actually i believe a short film he made played some festivals a couple years ago mm. so he's still got that blood in him but you know he's having a ball on it's always sunny in philadelphia for the last decade i think so good for him you know he's living his best life so that's what we'll be doing next week and until then my name is justin the clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening It's me, Mickey Mouse, and I can say whatever I want now. <laughs> oh! I just shot Mickey Mouse to death because he's been let out of his pen. Yep, he's free. We own him now. We can do whatever we want with we him. Can, we can fuck him. We can suck him. We can make him fuck now, us. Now, did you see the rules that, like, okay, so... Steamboat Willie is in the public domain and people are like, well, you can only do black and white Steamboat Willie. But then they go incorrect because he appeared in color on the posters. Oh. So you can do color Mickey Mouse Steamboat Willie. I mean, what he doesn't have is his voice. No, he does not. So you can't do it like, Hoo -hoo. could you get sued for that? 
even though that's a voice that anybody can do a bad imitation of. Maybe you can do it as parody. Like, did you ever see that South Park episode where they had Mickey Mouse in it? Like, it was the Jonas Brothers parody episode from, <laughs> I don't like, know. 10 I never years ago. Anyway, Mickey Mouse was in that, basically. But it's parody, right? Mm, you're you know? allowed. Yeah. But you can't do something like Air Pirate Funnies. Because you'll get sued. Did you ever read that story or like? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a whole right. book about it too. About but that's a guy that he made like a Mickey Mouse style comic book, but for adults, and he like wanted Disney to sue him. So we all own Mickey Mouse now, and what are we gonna do with him? Nothing. No, nothing. Because who cares? Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> but Sonny Bono died trying to keep extend that copyright. You know, for 20 years, nothing went into the public domain. Bananas. That's crazy. Uh, unacceptable. And then it was just crazy. Just a few years ago, all of a sudden things started. Going going into the public domain again what do you think like the people in charge are thinking when like no one is considering we need to keep this in the public domain that's clearly not at the forefront of their mind obviously what disney has been doing for the last 10 years and it may be directly related to this it may not be but they've been buying up lots of different yeah so they own everything yeah so it's like okay mickey mouse is going to the public domain that's fine we have star wars we have marvel because if they wanted to extend the copyright they could pay off some fucking senators to do it well the next you know the next big one to fall is going to be superman oh what's that Superman? yeah i'm Pro- not sure like 10 years from now okay so do you think they will move on that or but the thing is like it's hard to imagine no one know? cares though because like there's a million superman ripoffs that are essentially superman well and also like dracula is in the public domain yeah he's still a brand uh yeah uh, and there was i mean lots of copyright lawsuits back in the day with nosferatu and stuff like that yeah is sherlock holmes not all of him in the public domain because you know the rules is that like you can do a sherlock Holmes thing but he can't show emotion because that appeared later on in his stories really and the doyle estate is very litigious about what about it. the robert downey jr movies are those i don't know I, I i think they probably paid off the doyle estate yeah copyright is dumb like of course the, the person is dead it's like eh, it should be free to all well and also like yeah yeah sorry i i don't have anything to add i thought what, you were gonna what? make an argument of no. like no extend copyright i was gonna build on what you're saying but i don't have anything to say like like i completely agree and you know at a certain point it's like yeah has the internet like killed copyright like the idea of what is official what is not because it's all out there well the director of the people's joker would say might, differently yeah might might say differently but i mean I think it is true that like basically 98% of things you can just put online. Do you remember people making the argument of like, maybe people would be confused that people's Joker is a real Joker movie, which is where, to to which I say, who cares? And who cares? Shut up. What are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's not my problem. If people have, have brand confusion. Yeah. Like, and that's the argument you usually make for copyright things. And also you think, you think Batman's going to crumble because somebody made a parody film. Like Mm -hmm. Batman will outlive us all. Yeah. And the people that own Batman, here's the thing. They probably have more money than like the other people doing Batman but, but stuff. But the people who are like simping for Warner Brothers in that case, like what they care about is like the the they, pure the Batman. pure about it. The the, the yeah the brand. Oh, I'm management. sorry. The pure Batman, the one who's in like three different movies. Michael Keaton is playing him. Other people are playing him in the Batman. There's a million cartoon. What are you talking about? I know, it's ridiculous. But. We agree that you do need to tie yourself to one kind of intellectual property or another, and you make that your entire identity. I think 
all the Beatles music should be in the public domain. I agree. Because I think we own that. Yes. Like, oh, you like, think so? Do you think it, something gets so popular that then like all copyright rules fall away? Well, look, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not saying that I can stand by this, but, <laughs> no. but at this moment right now, I say yes. Yes. Be okay. Because yeah, like, yeah, it should be like how if a term like Kleenex or something mm -hmm. becomes so popular, it becomes the thing itself. Yes. I actually think this, like the, after 50 years, if the Beatles music is that omnipresent, it should be like, okay, we own this. Like the, the Beatles are still alive though. To which argument I would make, they don't need any more money. Yeah, They're rich enough. I would say, I would say make some new shit. Yeah. <laughs> How about earn your keep? Well, I have the uh, new Paul McCartney okay, album. Okay, actually don't make any new shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, Important Cinema Club on the term of copyright extension. We say no, do not extend it. Controversial opinion, I know, but we're making a stand. And by the way, I will also just say, I want to reiterate, 98% of things are basically in the public domain anyway. You go on YouTube, search most movies and somebody's just uploaded it. And yeah. by most movies, I'm saying like most movies that have ever been made. Yeah, but if it's like an indie filmmaker, don't upload it. Like if they're still You're around. Right. Yeah. I, I I believe in morality. But like if you go up. But if you, I want to watch like the Geico caveman who got his pilot on right. Fox that was dropped. That'll be up on YouTube. Leave that there Or if forever. you want to watch like a TV movie from, you want to watch Return to Mayberry. Yeah. Like that's like that'll be on. I guarantee that's on YouTube and that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's 100 that's where it fine. belongs. But we are making a killer Mickey Mouse horror film. We want to get in on the ground floor. Yeah. Listen, there's isn't, money to be made. Isn't that cool? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that so cool? There's going to be a Mickey Mouse slasher. One multiple will oh, multiple. Man. That's so that's so cool. I'm, I'm going to watch them all. Buy them all. It's, it's a little subversive, isn't it? <laughs>